This is an ABC podcast. At its height, Islamic State held huge parts of Syria and Iraq. It was the biggest threat to global security. And Australians fled overseas to join the extremist group. It was a big problem. A lot of those wanted to go, others were coerced, and some were just little kids. And for years, dozens of these Aussie citizens have been trapped overseas until now. Hi, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. In a bit, you're going to hear about the plans for these relatives of former IS fighters who are arriving back in Australia. Also coming up, the decade-long fight for one Aussie town to get clean water to drink. Why the hell has it taken so long? First, though. Hack. Elon Musk has owned Twitter for less than a week and already things are changing on Triple J. Yeah, so you've got to spare $68 billion. What are you going to do with it? You could pay a couple of weeks' rent, buy an iceberg lettuce, or you could just buy Twitter, because that's what Elon Musk's done with his money. And you probably heard he's keen to shake things up. He's been making a lot of headlines, especially over the past couple of days. Twitter isn't as popular in Australia as it is in some other places overseas. Like, it's only the eighth most popular social media site here, but it's really big in the United States. And a lot of free speech advocates like Elon Musk reckon Twitter's gone too far previously, censoring conservative views. So does this billionaire's takeover of Twitter mean it's a free-for-all now where all the rules are chucked out the window? Well, Shalala Madora finds out. Let me ask you, should I keep the Twitter going or not? Keep it going? Remember this guy? Former US President Donald Trump was mad for a tweet. The fact that I have such power in terms of numbers with Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. I think it helped me win. That is, until he got kicked off the social media platform for tweeting support of the January 6th insurrection in Washington, D.C. The backlash from conservatives was massive. They said Twitter's moderation policies had gone too far and squashed free speech. One of those people was the world's richest man, Elon Musk. It was not correct to ban Donald Trump. I think that was, that was a mistake because it, uh, it alienated a large part of the country. In April this year, Elon Musk made a play to buy the site for a whopping $44 billion. He later pulled out of the deal, saying he'd been misled about the number of bots and fake accounts. Twitter has been on a roller coaster throughout 2022. Twitter sued him for breaking the contract, and Musk backtracked again and put the offer back on the table just before the case was due to start. That deal was finalised last week. Billionaire and Tesla CEO Elon Musk now owns Twitter. Around 5.3 million Australians use Twitter, and it's not used much by young people. So within Australia, it's probably one of the uh, least popular countries for Twitter to operate. That's Dr Jonathan Hutchinson, an expert in online media from the University of Sydney. As he explains, Twitter is a micro-blogging site, somewhere that lets you post short messages and memes. There's heaps of politics chat on it, and around one in five American adults uses the platform. I think the most powerful aspect that Twitter has is the the hashtag, and it's a way to, to, to group conversations together. Jonathan says hashtags can mobilise people both online and off. So people will see that a conversation is emerging around a particular topic. It's a way to sort of extend that energy into other spaces, other social media platforms, for example, or it could also be, you know, let's go down to the street, 
grab a placard and start protesting about whatever it might be. Twitter has been instrumental in helping people protest and rise up against oppressive governments in places like Iran and Myanmar. The three biggest social media platforms in the world, one is controlled by the Chinese, one is controlled by Mark Zuckerberg, and one is controlled by Elon Musk. Former CEO of Facebook in Australia, Stephen Schleler, said that concentration of power wasn't necessarily a good thing. I'm not sure that's the best place for social media to be. Elon Musk's first moves as head honcho is to make people pay for their blue tick verifications and cut back on the team that moderates content. He's also going to set up a moderation council to decide issues of free speech. Jonathan thinks internal groups like that often miss the point. And the reason why that happens is that they're not in conversation with the people that are being impacted the most. Fewer moderators mean less capacity to tackle hate speech and deliberate trolling. And it's already happening. One user tweeting, quote, Elon now controls Twitter, unleash the racial slurs and then tweeting racial slurs for Jewish people and black people. These have been retweeted and shared thousands of times. That doesn't just turn off users of the site. It turns off advertisers. Here's Elizabeth Lopato from American tech news outlet, The Verge. A platform that's full of racial slurs is not very friendly to advertisers, and Twitter gets 89% of its revenue right now from advertisers. Big companies are already getting skittish. Some of the car companies that advertise on Twitter, uh, GM is the one I'm thinking specifically of, have started cancelling their advertising runs. And a lot of users are worried about what Twitter will look like under Elon Musk, who describes himself as a free speech absolutist. He's had a few, um, questionable takes. I don't know, I thought it was funny. That's why I wrote ha-ha at the end. Like the time he tweeted that one of the Thai cave rescuers was a pedophile because he rejected Musk's offer to use a tiny submarine in the rescue effort. And then there's his downplaying of COVID. Dr Jonathan Hutchinson reckons a lot of existing users aren't so keen on the direction Musk could take the platform. And we're starting to see a mass exit from Twitter as we have this conversation even. Hack on Triple J. Shlala Maduro with that story. And I'm wondering what you think of all this. Are you worried about Elon Musk's plans for Twitter? Or maybe you back them. Maybe you don't care because you don't use Twitter. I want to know. Whatever your thoughts are, 0439 757 555. One person on the text line says, imagine if you bought Twitter, then just deleted it and went back to doing Elon things. It'd be pretty rogue. It definitely would. I want to get into this a bit more. And I've got someone who can help us, who studies free speech, democracy, social media. Madeline Hale is a PhD candidate in the Deakin Law School, and she's with us now. G'day, Madeline. Thank you so much for joining us on Hack. I want to get into the first question. How likely you think it is that we could see a massive change in the way Twitter operates as a platform for discussion under Elon Musk? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's really the million-dollar question, isn't it? We can't predict the future, especially with someone who is known to be as unpredictable as uh, Elon Musk. Um, As your report said, we know he calls himself a free speech absolutist, which means there's no limits on the type of speech um, that should warrant protection. So things like hate speech, disinformation, misinformation, conspiracy theories, um, all that sort of stuff, uh, would not be protected um, uh, and could really just run riot on on the app, so on Twitter. So it's 
very much a possibility. We saw in the, the 12 hours after the deal was announced that the N-word on Twitter increased by 500%. Um, and all you need to do is look at the comments on Elon's posts themselves to see the kind of um, unsafe place that Twitter could become, especially for the most vulnerable users. Having said that, of course, on the other hand, he does still have to act within the bounds of the law and that will temper just how massive um, the change will be to to Twitter because he does have to respect things like intellectual property laws, defamation law, um, and, of course, he has to please his, his stakeholders and potential advertisers. So that might restrict just how much of a cesspool it descends into. Um, but, uh, you know, all we need to do is look at Truth Social and Parler as potentially radical examples of um, the extreme speech kind of platform that this this could turn into. I mean, there are a lot of conservatives who've been saying this is going to strengthen free speech. You've dealt a lot and kind of studied free speech, social media, that sort of thing. Do you agree with that? Again, that's a really interesting question because it really depends on your interpretation of free speech. Uh, There would be people out there like Musk himself who believe that free speech shouldn't have any restraints. It shouldn't have any limits, um, that you should be able to say whatever you want. And if that's your view, then perhaps less moderation on Twitter would uh, would be a good thing. And look, as a free speech scholar, I think it is important that we have a wide array of views, which is what Musk wants, um, so that we're not all living in our own bubbles. But to be honest, most free speech scholars, including myself, would think would agree that uh, speech does have to have some limits. For example, speech that incites violence or, or hate speech um, or the you know legal requirements of meeting intellectual property laws or defamation laws, all that sort of thing, um, those categories are uh, necessary limits on speech. Um, in addition to that, um, there's a theory that um, if you allow things like hate speech to run rampant on these apps, you're actually suppressing the speech of the most vulnerable people. So, for example, minorities who might find it difficult to express their views in a climate that's filled with hate. Um, and if we let that kind of hate speech run rampant on something like Twitter, um, we're actually undermining uh, their own speech and their own, th- these groups, the most vulnerable group speech is not truly free. Um, so, yeah, I don't know that I would agree that much with the statement that it actually strengthens free speech. Again, it depends on your interpretation. I would argue that it, whilst perhaps enables some people's speech, severely undermines other people's speech, particularly the most vulnerable people. Interesting. We've got a lot of thoughts coming through on the text line. James in Bunjalung Country says maybe Twitter will just become a super right-wing echo chamber. Another person, Mel, says I've been using Twitter for the past 10 years and I love it. Seriously, people, if you don't like it, go elsewhere. That's Mel's point of view. Somebody else, Musk is just another idiot with too much money and power and a wildly overinflated ego. It's sad that free speech advocates mostly just want to be able to spew hate and misinformation. I'm wondering, um, Madeline, do you think that you mentioned Parler before? Is there a chance that Twitter could turn into something like that? It calls itself a pioneer in free speech. There's no real focus on moderation or that sort of thing. Could we see it it, it sort of mould or um, morph into something like Parler? Potentially. I think Parler and Truth Social are good examples of what to look to as what can as examples of what can happen when there's not a lot of moderation going on. Um, and what they kind of look like is essentially hotbeds of 
of bots, conspiracy theories, misinformation, disinformation, even pornography. I think in the first few days of Parler's launch, it just turned into a stream of pornography. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've, they've not been very successful so far. Uh, it's it's a very small market share of people who want to inhabit um, that kind of extreme speech platform. So given that, though, and given the fact that Elon Musk is a businessman, his interest in buying Twitter will be business-based. He, he wants to um, increase the profitability of Twitter and harness its, its potential. Given that, it may not turn in to completely parlour and truth social examples. Um, I don't think it would be to Musk's advantage to do that or economic advantage there, especially because he wants to turn it into a super app. Um, He he just can't afford to isolate so many of his users. Um, And Twitter is a much bigger platform, so there's going to be a lot more backlash against that. But if, if uh, if, if Twitter is allowed to just run wild with very little moderation, especially of hate speech and disinformation, misinformation, which is already such a big problem on these apps, um, like Twitter and like Facebook, then yeah, it could definitely go the way of parlor and true social. Yeah, wow. Well, it's definitely something a lot of people are going to be keeping an eye on over the next few months, see what changes are actually brought in, because there's a lot of talk at this point. Madeline Hale from Deakin Law School, thank you so much for joining us on Hack. Thanks so much, Dave. And we've got a lot of messages coming through on this one. Someone says, seeing how things are going around the world, this isn't going to go well. People confuse free speech with hate and racism. Cluey says, the idea of charging for blue ticks will backfire. There's nothing in it for the users. I think it's going to make Twitter less useful and relevant. And Josh in Melbourne says, Twitter was already a niche social media platform. Elon Musk's changes seem likely to reduce its appeal further. I guess he can afford it and doesn't really care. And one more, Robbie from Avalon says, I don't see it changing anything. Twitter's already an extremely unsafe place. And I think everyone's kidding themselves if they think otherwise. You don't want to see it or don't get on it. Tack. The individuals we're talking about here are Australians. Everybody wants to make sure that we take every precaution for people's safety. The government's doing that. On Triple J. For years, dozens of Australians have been living in detention camps in Syria. They're relatives of former Islamic State fighters, they're widows and children. And there's been a lot of debate about what we should do about these Australian citizens. It's been ramping up since the UN warned earlier this year that living conditions in those Syrian camps amounts to torture. So the Albanese government's announced it's bringing them home. 13 children and four women arrived in Sydney over the weekend. More are expected to be brought back in the months ahead. But not everyone's happy with this decision. The opposition says these people could be a national security threat. Some are concerned they could hold extremist views. So what happens next? Well, Dr Josh Ruse is a political sociologist. He knows a lot about extremism and citizenship and he's with us now. G'day, Josh. Thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Good afternoon. Do we know much about who these people are? We don't know the specific names. We don't know the specific... um cities that these individuals are from, for example, but we do know a lot about their background. So we do know that uh, many of these women and children have been held in camps in uh, Syria for the past three years. And and these camps are, are pretty much um, you know, quite extreme prison-like conditions where there's also a lot of, um, you know, uh, it's a dog-eat-dog sort of world. Uh, there's a lot of radicalisation in these prisons. We know there's a lot of issues. Um, and we know that they're also often considered inhumane by international bodies. We know that some were married to husbands who became Islamic State fighters and, and travelled to the region. Some might even have been sympathetic to that 
um, and wanted to go. Others, however, certainly faced coercive control and were forced to go. Others uh, were potentially minors who were then forced to marry Islamic State fighters. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, those supporting this move say there's a lot of fear mongering around the conversations that are being having are being had, especially in the media. Politics is being played. What are some of the concerns, though, about the safety of the community? It's the emotion in this is is easy to understand because the Islamic State movement, you know, were associated with atrocity, genocide, sexual slavery, and and terror attacks globally. So, I mean, the, the heightened emotion around this is, is understandable. Um, there's a concern that these women might be returning and, and hold radical beliefs. There's also a concern um, among some that refugees that have come here, um, you know, Zedi refugees, for example, might run into their former captors at a supermarket, um, as small as the chances that might be. And we shouldn't dismiss the fears, but we need to look at the evidence and we need to look at a constructive way forward that moves beyond the motion to actually dealing with a problem. These are Australian citizens, um, and, and in particular, the, the children of these um, citizens are innocent, and we, we need to address that. You're listening to Harkham Dave Marchese speaking with Dr Josh Roos, an expert in extremism. Josh, I'm wondering what happens when people like this are brought back to Australia. Like, is there a big program of de-radicalisation that's carried out over a long time? How does it work? There'll certainly be programs, um, but it's important to understand first that many are returning to families that have been fighting for their repatriation. Um, and, and these families have been working with authorities to reintegrate their loved ones um, for quite some time. They've been um, uh, active, been meeting with government, been working uh, for a long time. We also know that they've absolutely been interviewed by Australian authorities at length, and they'll be required to participate in programs, including monitoring uh, on their return. Uh, the, the details, quite understandably, haven't been publicly released, but it's safe to say in a country such as Australia that takes national security incredibly seriously that authorities aren't going to be taking any chances. And is there a lot of evidence that, you know, programs around de-radicalisation and stuff work? Yeah, we do know um, that there's, there's numerous instances of um, de-radicalisation programs globally. We do know that um, for, for the most part, many of these individuals who, who do partake in them return to some form of normalcy. There have been um, quite prominent instances where uh, that hasn't occurred and they've, um, they've found people who've gone through these programs um, back on the front line, so to speak. But what we do know from Europe uh, is that this is really about a case-by-case basis of assessment. Um, you, you can't paint a broad brush when you're looking at the individual circumstances that drove people to radicalisation in the first place. So we know that more ideologically committed hardliners are unlikely to change, but uh, the authorities are really uh, best placed to assess the specific circumstances of each individual, um, and in particular, um, these women and their children. All right. Well, Dr Josh Roos, we appreciate your insight on this. Thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks for your time. And there was a statement that was released by the repatriated women over the weekend. They said, you know, we're deeply thankful to be back home in Australia with our children. They said, we appreciate the complexity and significant work it's taken from many people, including the government, to bring us home. And we want to express our regret for the trouble and hurt that we've caused, especially to our families. You're listening to Hack. Ross Arden in Tasmania had the best water in the world and we were drinking shit. On Triple J.
You know, one of the best things about living in a country like Australia is our access to stuff like clean, safe drinking water. It's something you take for granted every day, probably. When you feel like you're a bit thirsty, you just go to the tap, get yourself a big cold glass of water. The thing is, there are towns and communities in Australia where you can't do that because the water is contaminated. You cannot drink it. Some places have been dealing with this for more than a decade. It's actually been a huge issue in Tasmania, which probably surprises some of you because it's a part of Australia that's generally known for its pristine environments, right? Well, our Tassie reporter April McLennan's been following one community's fight for better water. Carrying water, having no water, it's been a hard yakka, but you know what? We're getting water now and that's all that matters to me, so I'm pretty bloody excited. Lynette Simpson's lived in the tiny Tasmanian town of Pioneer for around 20 years. For the past decade, the town hasn't had a reliable supply of drinkable tap water. But now, tradesmen line the main road, digging trenches and feeding pipes under the earth to reintroduce a pipe supply of drinking water to the township. Oh my God, it will change my life. You know, I can turn the taps on and have pressure and have decent drinking water. I don't have to come down and carry water. I don't have to have ABC washers for three years. Wash my hair in a bucket. It'll be just bloody lovely to stand under the shower and not have pumps running all the time and bumping up my power bill. Let's rewind to 2012. It was all those years ago when the town's tap water was found to be unfit to drink due to unsafe levels of lead in the water. Some experts thought it was because of old degraded pipes. But the mayor of the local council, Greg Howard, says he suspects the town's water was always contaminated because it's a mining area with a lot of heavy metals in the ground. It's just that 10 years ago you didn't have to check for them. So it's only when they changed the Australian drinking water standards that people started testing for some of those heavy metals that were probably in a number of um, a number of town drinking water supplies around the state and um, they're in much heavier quantities up at Pioneer than in most other areas. This sparked concerns that the locals had been exposed to unsafe levels of lead and other heavy metals for years before being warned about it. Ross Arden in Tasmania had the best water in the world and we were drinking shit. That's Gary Watson. He remembers getting a brochure in the mail from the state's water authority, Taswater. It mentioned that we could shower in that water, but you must keep your mouth and your eyes shut. We could grow our vegetables with that water, but certainly do not wash them in the water before you eat. As a solution, Taswater put in drinking water tanks at properties within the town. The ABC obtained documents that confirmed in 2014, Taswater had done tests on roof paint on multiple properties in Pioneer to see how much lead was in the paint. The results showed some of these roofs had lead in the paint that was well above the acceptable limit. But Taswater connected water tanks to those roofs anyway. They say they misread the test results. Greg says Taswater made the wrong decision by installing the water tanks. That was never going to work. I thought it was a, I thought it was a very poor option at the time. And so I think they dropped the ball from that point of view that the, it was a cheap option. They thought they'd get away with it um, for a little, a little spend rather than a decent spend and, um, and it didn't work. Taswater says cost was never an issue. It says at the time, locals wanted water tanks over a pipe supply of water. 
In a statement, Tuswater said it takes time to plan and build a new reticulation system. It said after issues were found with some of the water tanks, Tuswater has been trucking in treated water and they'll continue to do so until the pipe supply of water is up and running. Now, 10 years on, Greg's relieved as he watches the water pipes go in the ground. His advice for other regional towns struggling with water issues? Perseverance. But it's hard to deal with big corporations and they tend to concentrate on the bigger problems in the bigger population areas, which is probably understandable. And the little voices in the little country towns seem to um, have less of a voice, I suppose. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that story. I want to speak to an expert now. I've got one with us. Dr Ian Wright from Western Sydney University knows a lot about water quality and he's with us now. Dr Wright, thank you so much for joining us on Hack. I'm wondering, has access to clean drinking water been a really big issue for communities across the country in the past? Yeah, it's probably a big surprise to people, Dave, but lots of people, particularly in regional Australia, don't have access to clean drinking water, clean and safe drinking water. And it is one of the United Nations sustainable development goals. Everyone has a right to clean and safe drinking water. Someone on the text line said Eramanga has the worst water ever. It's like rotten eggs. So, yeah, people are messaging in, talking about, you know, places they've lived or visited with, you know, not so great water, water that often people can't use. Is Do we test this enough? Like, is there a lot of reporting and testing of water that's done around the country? It really depends on where you live, Dave. And it was a great report by April there, but it was it was really interesting. They weren't aware of the problem in that town, Pioneer in Tasmania, until they started testing. And I would say if you're living in one of Australia's capital cities or a big regional centre, your health department would be onto it. And, you know, with the water authority, they'd be testing the water. But just think of those people living out in isolated settlements or perhaps you know, on a farmhouse with their own tank water, it's unlikely they get the testing that they really need to protect their health. Yeah, that's for sure. I'm wondering what some of the main reasons are for our water to be unsafe. Like, are there uh, certain things that generally contaminate water or are more likely to contaminate water? Yeah, sure. Well, it's, you know, with the lead, there is actually a horrific crisis in this going right across the United States at the moment. And over there, and I think it might have been a similar process in Pioneer in Tasmania, it was a reaction of clean water supply with plumbing pipes. And in the States, for about 50 years, they actually mandatory um, enforced the use of lead pipes in plumbing. And then water can react to it and mobilise, basically dissolve the lead. And the same thing can happen here. For example, soldering, that is, you know, it's a way of joining metals together is, you know, solder used to be a combination of tin and lead. So it can come from pipes or it could be the geology of the local water supply. Another thing that I found really interesting when looking at water quality was like the aesthetic of the water, what it looks like, because that's also important as well, right? Like if if water doesn't look good, people aren't going to drink it. Oh, look, and, you know, there's a really good reason why our human senses pick up. You know, it's really hard to drink something when you see stuff floating in your water, Dave. Um, But also, you know, for me, it's also the smell. For so many people talk about that. Like if you go to a country town, 
that's cranked up the chlorine in the water, you put on the shower and wow, this waft of chlorine hits you. And, you know, your senses are giving you some kind of warning, perhaps it might not be good, as good as what you were hoping for. And I imagine there's a a bit of a financial impact of all this as well. Like if, you know, people don't have access to clean water, they can't just turn on the taps, they're going to have to buy bottled water and stuff like that. Oh, absolutely. And there's so many people in regional Australia that, that have to do that. They pay more money and drink bottled water. And as that report from April said, they, they weren't even advising that you cook with this water. So imagine the volume of um, water that people would buy. Uh, you, you know, you can treat. There are filtration systems that you can install, but again, that comes at cost. And for vulnerable communities, can they afford that? Probably not. I imagine people like you are hoping this gets a lot more attention as well because, like you say, there are communities that are probably struggling and we're not thinking about it in bigger cities if people are living in bigger cities. So you'd be desperate for people to be paying attention to this, right? Yeah, look, absolutely. And if you've got any concerns about this book at all, have a chat to your you know, GP perhaps because you can actually get tested and they have found very high lead levels in the blood of children. If you've got under six-year-old children, this can be a really serious issue. Right. Okay. Well, very good advice there. We appreciate you filling us in. Dr. Ian Wright from Western Sydney University, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Pleasure to be on Hack. Thanks, Dave. Hack on Triple J. A big thanks again to all of our guests. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.